Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Our speaker today came from the Amish tradition. Henry Miller got saved at a young age, went to God's Bible School in college where he would receive his formal education, met his wife Jan Egan there, and together the Henry Miller family have blessed churches all across this nation for many decades. This sermon was preached at the Bible Holiness Camp in Troy, Missouri many years ago, and it's titled, Obeying God. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust you do, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. <clears throat> Second Kings chapter 5, I want to read a familiar story. I'm not like the uh, big-time evangelist and big preacher evangelist. Some of you might know him, Ray Smith. Any of you know Big Ray? <laughs> He's quite a preacher. I just like to hear Brother Smith preach. But he can, uh, he can take an obscure scripture. I'm telling you that, you know, you read the Bible through, but you never see that. But it, it comes alive when he reads it. And uh, I have more than one occasion when he's read his scripture, I said to myself, what in the world is the man going to say? And before he was done, I could have just kicked myself that I didn't think of it first. <laughs> he has an ability of making it so plain and so clear and bringing it right down to where you live using just good homespun illustrations. And I like that. But I'm just not like that. So I stay with the familiar scriptures, stories that all of us have heard again and again and again. The story about Naaman, 2 Kings chapter 5. I want to read verse 1 and then verse 10 and then verse 14 and then the first part of verse 19. Verse 1 reads like this. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master. And honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor. But 
He was a leper. That changes the whole story, doesn't it? It really does. Verse 10 says, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Verse 14 says, Then went he down and dipped himself in Jordan, dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Verse 19, the first part says, And he said unto him, Go in peace. As the Lord would help me this morning, I want to deal with the subject. The way to victory, obey God. The way to victory, obey God. I'm sure that some of you right away will say, well, that's the old story. Everybody knows that. You have to obey God to have victory. But you know, it's also the new story. It's still relevant for our day. It really, really is. And I know it sounds like beginner stuff. I know it sounds like uh, beginning school day teaching type things. You know, elementary kids, you know, and uh, just the foundational things. But the truth remains. It doesn't make any difference if you're a child or a teenager or a middle-aged person or an older person. You still have to obey God in order to have victory. You have to obey God to get saved and you have to obey God to stay saved. You have to obey God to get sanctified and you have to obey God to stay sanctified. And you have to obey God every day you live to walk in the light and live above sin and above the world and above the problems and pressures that can just crowd in on us so that if the devil has his way, we'll lose our way. You'll have to obey God. I know some of us would no doubt want me to preach on, and I'll just, I guess, leave that up to Brother Stetler when he gets here. He has the ability to lift us in the clouds and give those inspirational messages and those encouraging things and really inspire us and exalt, you know, the Lord. And I'm telling you, just really lift us to the heights. But I've come to this conclusion. If we ever go up in the clouds, we're going to have to obey Christ. I ask you this morning a very personal question. Are you obeying God in all areas? If you're not, you don't have victory. I think it's really possible to be saved and sanctified and have some problem areas with issues and ideas and impressions that we need to pray about and day by day give it to God and his leadership and obey him or we won't have victory over those areas. Do you really have
have victory in all areas. We sing songs like victory in Jesus and amazing grace and all that thrills my soul is Jesus and on the victory side and I know in whom I believed and when we all get to heaven, uh, oh yes, we sing songs like that and we're all persuaded here this morning we can so live right here and now that we can be pleasing to God. But I ask you, are you? You see, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to live there. If you don't have victory, the simple truth is it's because you're not doing what God told you to do. And if you have victory, it's because you are doing what God says. It's either obey and have victory or not obeying and not having victory. Simple, isn't it? And yet, why is it? Though so many times we know so much to do, we do so little in minding God. Lord, help us this morning. There are seven points in the lesson I want to quickly give as the Lord helps me this morning. First of all, there is a call for help in this story. You might recall in me reading this verse, and you've read it again and again, I'm sure, previous to my reading it, verse 1. Did you notice that there are at least five good points mentioned about Naaman? And there's only one negative? If I were to have asked you, do you remember the story of Naaman in the Bible? No doubt 100% of us this morning would have said, sure, I remember that story. If I would have asked you another question, do, what do you remember? What do you remember about Naaman? I guarantee you 95% of you would have said, he was a leper. Did you know that's the only negative thing said about him? <laughs> and we remember that. The point is simple. We're still that way. We have the unique ability to remember the negatives, the bad, rather than the good. He was quite a character, just to be honest. The only thing wrong with him, is he had leprosy. But he was captain. He was a great man with his master. He was honorable. God had even used him to bring deliverance to his country. And he was a mighty man in warfare. Five strong points. But we don't remember that. I guarantee you some of you didn't even know that. But you did remember he was a leper, didn't you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, remember that. Dear friend, I just want to digress long enough to remind us, if we're not careful, that is the very thing we will do every single time. Instead of capitalizing on the good in people, we extol or exploit their bad points. And it affects our love to them. It affects our friendship. It affects our opinions. By one negative 
thing and we forget all the good. In this particular account, he had five good things on his side, but leprosy, and I know leprosy is a terrible thing, and in the Bible it's a type of sin every time. Sure, and you know, I think I know some good individuals, splendid personalities, great neighbors, high-class living people, living in a good moral state. They don't commit adultery. They don't commit the grossest of sins. Oh, no, they're a high-caliber people. In fact, they go to church on Sunday. They give to charities. They're tremendous personalities. They're what you call good people. But the good is ruined by one thing. And that's the sin of leprosy in their heart. That sin. They haven't given God their lives. They haven't given God their all. And all their good points in a moral setting, in a neighborhood setting, and even in a church setting, all those good points are overridden by the main point. And they can't be used in God's kingdom because they've never surrendered their will and their lives and their hearts and their past and their present and their future to Jesus Christ. They're still sinners. Oh, God, help us this morning. There is a call for help. The call for help came through a letter. You remember that there was a little Israelite handmaiden that was in Naaman's household as the maid to Naaman's wife because Israel had been captured at least in part, prior to this story. She knew the, the problem with Naaman because he was her lord, her master, her boss. And, and she said one day, you know, would to God that my lord, she called him a lord with a little L, it did show respect, did show honor. She was uh, doing what he said, he was her boss and she was lifting him to that position. Would to God that my Lord would be able to get to a man of God in my country and I know he would be healed of his leprosy. That news floated to the king of Syria and the king said, if that's all that's necessary, let's be at it. And he got some fellows together and he said, get you some horses and a chariot, get you 10 changes of clothes, get you some silver and some gold. I'll sit down and write a letter and explain the situation to the king of Israel and you're gonna be off and we're gonna have Naaman healed. That's what they did. And they took off for the king of Israel. A real call for help. You see, he was a popular, he was a powerful man, he had prestige, and, and all that usefulness was basically ruined because he was a leper. And so the king of Syria was very interested in having this important man in his kingdom healed of the thing that ruined his life. When the king of Israel received the letter and he read the letter, he got all excited. He got all shook up. He was frustrated about the whole thing. He said, uh, who do they think I am? Think I'm God that I can heal, that I can raise the dead? Who do they think I really am? And he went on 
and said that he believed there has to be some trick in this. There's an ulterior motive behind this. When the man of God, Elisha, heard how the king of Israel had responded to reading that letter, he somehow got the news to the king and said, there's no need in you acting like that. Send him down to my house. I'll take care of him. Well, that's the guy they needed to see anyhow. So they loaded up Naaman. They got the letter, the horses and chariot, and away they went. And they went down to Elisha's house. Elisha reads the letter. No doubt Elisha prays over that letter. And then he sends out a little messenger boy and then point number two to answer this call for help through this letter, he gives a clear command. The command is simply this. That messenger boy stepped outside, saw Naaman, walked up to him, and in terminology we can understand in our day, he says something like this, Naaman, Elisha told me to tell you, go jump in the river. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, just make sure it's the river of Jordan and make sure you do it seven times. Now you find anywhere in the Bible where there is a clear command. You won't find any. He tells him what he has to do. He tells him how many times he has to do it and where he has to do it. That's a clear command. That's to the point. Go to the river Jordan, dip seven times, and thou shalt be clean. Don't forget that. That's God's part. If man does what he is told to do, God will do his part. So it's to the river of Jordan, seven times dipping in the river of Jordan, and his leprosy will be gone. That's a simple matter. Do it. But you remember what happened? It wasn't quite that easy. Because when Naaman heard the command in response to the call, he, had, he, he got contentious. That's point number three. He got contentious. Did he ever get contentious? The first thing he said was this. Doesn't he understand who I am? He's dealing with a captain of the king, of the host of the king of Syria. He is dealing with a great man. After all, I'm an honorable fellow. After all, God has used me to bring deliverance to my country. And after all, I'm not just a young upstart. I'm educated in warfare. Who does he think? He is to send out this little messenger boy. Why it looks to me like because of who I am, a special character like me, he himself would have come out and just sort of waved his hand over the place and performed some mysterious something and would have healed me of my leprosy and I'd have been gone. You see, Naaman had it all worked out in his mind how it's going to happen. And when it didn't happen that way, he got all bent out of shape. He was contentious 
And that's just the way a lot of people are today. When they find out what they have to do, they get all upset about it. I mean, they really do. It's terrible. And they take this attitude. Now, wait just a minute, preacher. Wait just a minute, pastor. Don't you remember all the special things I've done at this church? I'm a special character. After all, I'm the one that helped pay for the carpet. After all, I'm the one who furnished the piano. After all, I helped make payments on the organ. After all, I'm the one that they, uh, you know, uh, trusted to build this building. After all, you know, I paid for some of those nice windows. After all, I helped with these pews, you know. And on down the line we go thinking that because we have done something for this church or that church or God's kingdom somewhere, that pastor, that church leader, even God ought to treat us as special characters. Something's wrong with an attitude like that. Nobody, nobody is more special in the sight of God than anybody else. We're all special in his sight. And the bottom line is, every one of us, regardless of our background, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're in or we're out with society, whether we're accepted and popular or whether we're rejected and not popular, it doesn't make any difference. Everyone that comes to God has to go by way of Calvary and have their sins forgiven and have to obey God. Everybody does. doesn't make us special. We just have to obey God, whoever we are. We don't get special favors from the Lord. We just have to obey him. No point in getting contentious. But he did. The next thing, he starts offering suggestions in his contention. See, he gets very contentious and he says, I'm a special guy. But on top of that contention, he says, now you just wait. I think there are better rivers. Why can't I go to the rivers of Damascus? He's offering God suggestions. You know what he wants? <laughs> I tell you what he wants. He wants to be cured of his leprosy, but he wants it done his own way. And you can say whatever you will, sir. That's the problem with every last individual. We want things our way. Might as well be honest. You have to be to go to heaven. Husbands, we like things to go our way around the house, don't we? Sure we do. It just seems to be better when it goes my way. You know, isn't that strange? Are you being honest? <laughs> Might as well be because that's the way you think. Ladies, you might as well be honest too. You like things to go your way. Yeah. Young people, you like things to go your way. Everybody does. Everybody does. 
in board meetings, everybody wants to have his way, but can't do it. You won't always get your way at home either. <laughs> but you know, the point is this, though I want my way, though ladies want their way, though young people want their way, we're going to have to do it God's way. Whatever he says, sure, it's nice to have it my way. Sure, it's nice to have it her way. Sure, it's nice to have it the children's way. But whatever we do, it has to be God's way above everything else. And people are still contentious in our day, offering God's suggestions. And finally, in this point of contention, did you notice the last scene? The last scene is he turns and stops off in a rage. You know what he means by that? It says, no, he's saying, no, sir, I'll never do it. That's requiring too much. You see, and he could honestly reason this. Lord, you're not being fair with me in the sense you're requiring something of me nobody else has to do. Did you ever read of anybody else in the Bible having to dip in the river of Jordan seven times? And he's the very first fellow. And so he could honestly say, Lord, you're requiring something of me that nobody else ever has had to do. Don't you think that's a little tough? Don't you think that's a little hard? Don't you think that's unfair? That's just exactly what the devil wants us to think. That God isn't fair with us. He requires too much. We have a tendency to look at others and say, well, if they do it, it's all right for me. No, not necessarily. After all, they're not the final authority. They are not, people are not the ones that give us approval or disapproval. But you see, we want things to go our way, so what we do when we're a little bit confused and we don't know really what's right, we have a tendency to go to somebody and ask advice that we are just sure going to see it like we see it. And then we come away and sort of pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, see, I knew it'd be all right. I just knew it. They said, and, and they'll come with this advice. Well, I know some others that do that. Why? I don't think that's a big issue. Let's not make issues out of little things, you know. Let's not get too excited and too straight and too narrow. And, you know, and let's not be too old-fashioned. And after all, I know some godly people that have gone there. And I know some individuals that bought that and brought it in their home. And I, I think they're good Christians. And, you know, after all, wait, 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 wait just a minute. What's this book say? You can go to a thousand and one people and they can all agree. But if the book differs from what they said, they are all wrong. Every last one of them, and I don't care who they are, they're all wrong. If the book does not permit it, you can ask whoever you will and they can give their permission. You'll still have to answer to God and his word is true. And I'm not against seeking godly advice I hope you understand that but this is the final authority this is the proof of whether we can do it or whether we can't thus saith the Lord thou shalt not we want to do it our way yeah we have that tendency he stomped off in a rage he said I'll not do it 
Do you ever see anybody uh, in, in churches sort of act like that? They didn't get their way and they stomped off and stomped out, stomped on somebody while they was going. I'm telling you, whew, terrible, isn't it? I can just tell you, not all the people that have the disposition that Naaman had are dead yet. No, they're not. There's some of them alive and not so well. And when he stomps off in a rage, I can see these fellows from home just almost automatically form a committee. And they sort of huddle together. And there's a spokesman in the bunch. And he sort of says, well, fellas, look at him. He's walking off. What are we going to do? And that chairman of the committee says, you know, I think he really needs to be talked to about it. And he looks to some of his, of his fellows there and he says, do you want to go talk to him about the fact that we came all the way from home for him to be healed? And that fellow said, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to talk to him. No, not me. He's not in a frame of mind. I want to talk to him. I don't want to make matters worse. He looks to another. He said, do you want to talk to him? No, I'd rather not. Now, whatever y'all do, I'll, I'll go along with it. But, you know, I, no, not me. Don't, don't count on me. You know? And the chairman says, well, I'll just tell you what. I'm not going home with a sick Naaman. We've come this far for one reason. And that's to have him healed of his leprosy. And if we don't, what's our king going to say? And on top of that, what about that little Hebrew girl's faith? Who said, if we get him to the man of God, she knows he'll be healed. What if he comes home sick? What will that do to her faith and trust in God? No, sir, we're not going home with a sick Naaman. And I'll talk to him. Y'all back me up. And I can see him headed Naaman's way. And he sort of calls out, hey, Naaman! And old Naaman sort of turns around in disgust as if to say, now what do you want? And that fellow doesn't miss a step. He keeps right on walking right in Naaman's direction. He walks right up to him. He says, Naaman, why don't you act like a man instead of an overgrown baby? And I can see old Naaman sort of saying, wait just a minute. You don't talk to me like that. I'm somebody special. You know, that same sort of, you know. And that fellow doesn't back down one bit. He says, you know good and well what you're supposed to do. You want to be healed of your leprosy, don't you? Sure I do. That's why we've come. Well, then why don't you go to Jordan? Why don't you dip seven times? Remember the command is, go to Jordan, dip seven times, and thou shalt be clean. Don't forget it, Naaman. That's the command. It's clear. Now be a man and do it. And old Naaman, he still has that sort of a, I can't believe you're talking to me like this. 
After all, I am somebody special, and I am powerful, and you know, I have prestige, you know, I have clout with my king, you know, and here you are, spouting off to me like that, and that guy doesn't back down one bit. In fact, he goes a step further, and he may draw even a little closer and say, and Naaman, let me just tell you, we know you well. We know that if he'd have told you to do something big in front of a crowd, out in the front of a bunch of people where your name would have received a lot of honor, you would have done it without a word. Now, wouldn't you? And about that time, Naaman realizes, hey, these fellows, they know me. They realize my problem down on the inside. How'd they know that? I think I can tell you. They're from home. They're from home. Individuals at home know us pretty well. These individuals that go away from home and man, they make their big speeches and their big splashes and boy, I tell you, they are hailed as heroes and whatever when they come home. They're just an average guy because people know him at home. I guess you know the definition of an expert, don't you? Definition of an expert. You know, you hear these experts, you know, they have special thing in their field or whatever, you know. An expert is just a common, ordinary spurt away from home. That's what one fellow said. <laughs> People from home knew Naaman. They knew how he acted. They knew he loved position. They knew that disposition was down in him. As long as I'm in the limelight, as long as I'm up front, as long as people are looking at me, I'll respond. I'll do it. And glad to do it. But when he had to go to the dirty old muddy Jordan and dipped seven times doing something nobody has ever done before. He wants to get all contentious and fuss, fusses around and rouse and, and I'm telling you, gets all excited and is determined he won't do it. But now the dagger runs through his heart. Hey, they know me. And I can see in my imagination his hands going up and saying, fellas, you found me out. That really is the way I am down on the inside. It's the way I feel. I would have done it if it had been special to me. There had been a lot of people around and been on a big platform somewhere, whatever, you know, and, and, and if he'd have come out and waved his hand over and I'd have had the special praise and whatever, you know, look what happened to Naaman. But when nobody's around and I can see him saying, fellas, what's the quickest route to Jordan. Let's be on our way. And he comes to the fourth point in my outline, and that is a place of commitment. And he says, we're headed to Jordan. <laughs> Hallelujah. He was contentious. Oh, yes, he was bitter about it. He was upset about it. But when he came to himself, he realized there's only one cure. You know why he couldn't go to the rivers of Damascus? Because God told him to go to Jordan. That's why. And he's saying, all right, my fussing's over. 
And I wish, I wish in the holiness movement we could get people over their fussing and their rationalizing and their reasoning and just come to this conclusion. God says what he means and means what he says. I've known individuals who knew what God wanted them to do and they have, they have rationalized and they've reasoned and they've argued and they've disputed and they've fussed and they've pushed it off and they've crowded God out and, 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 and then in hopes, in hopes that in time God will change his mind, but he doesn't. Once the command is clear and to the point, it's there forever until it's obeyed. And there was no substitute. It was the river of Jordan. It was seven times. And he said, all right, fellas, let's head toward Jordan the fastest way. And he takes off. And these fellows from home, they're so bumfuzzled. They are so confused. They don't know what to do. And they just sort of stand there. Because they just saw him stomp off in a rage as if to say, I'll never go to Jordan. It's too much. It's not fair for God to require that of me. And now he's headed toward Jordan. Now, what, what is he going to be serious or isn't he? Is he going to really do it or isn't he? Uh, we don't know what to believe. And they're sort of standing there and all of a sudden Naaman realizes he's sort of by himself and he turns around and looks at those fellows and they're way back there. He says, well, come on, fellas. Why are you dragging your feet? We're going to Jordan. And they sort of look back at him and say, are you serious? serious? Do you really mean it? A while ago you stomped off and said you'll never do it and now you're going to Jordan. Are we really going? Are you going through? Yeah, he says, I made up my mind. I'm determined. I'm going to Jordan. Let's go. Come on. And they head toward Jordan. On the way, on the way I can see some people gathering around and saying, hey, where are you fellas going? Well, we're going to Jordan. Well, what you going to Jordan for? Well, did you hear of Naaman? Yeah, we heard of Naaman. We heard he's sick. Yeah, he's really bad sick. But we just heard from the man of God. and He gave us a command. If Naaman would go and dip seven times in the river of Jordan, his life is going to be a miracle. And those fellows say, well, really? Oh, you don't mean it? Yeah, that's what, that's what the man of God said. And said, do you mind us going along? No, come on, that's no problem. You know, well, they'd like to get in on the miracle too, you know. And they hadn't seen it for a while. And so, so away they go. And some others gather. And they say sort of the same thing, you know. You won't mind if I come? No, no, come on. You know? And I can sort of see in my imagination the crowd gathering. They want to see what's ha- going to happen. And old Naaman is off in a distance crying unclean, 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 and sort of keeping his distance from the major crowd as they're supposed to in those days. And all of a sudden he looks around and he sees this big host of people (laughs) heading along with those fellows from home. And when he sees that crowd of people, instantly he thinks, what in the world are they doing here? His first reaction. And he may have turned around and hollered back at him and said, What are y'all doing here? Why don't you go on home? I'm having a hard enough time going to the river of Jordan with just the fellows from home, let alone all you. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. but And he turns around and another thought comes up. Wait just a minute. I've made a commitment. I'm going to Jordan. It really doesn't matter who's there and who isn't there. 
And I can see him again turn around and say, oh, come on, it doesn't make a difference. I'm going to Jordan anyhow, so it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that's exactly where we're going to have to come to. Whether there's anybody come along or not, it doesn't make a difference. We're going to do what God says, for we've committed ourselves to obey the Lord. Remember, I'm talking about the way to victory. Obey God. And go to your Jordan. Dip however many times is necessary. For some fellows may have dipped a dozen times. Maybe two dozen times. But I'm convinced God knows us as individuals and knows how many times it'll take for us to go down until we're down in humility as Naaman was. He knew exactly what Naaman needed and how many dips he needed to bring him off of his lofty opinion of himself and bring him down to where God could really touch him and use him. And he knows that about you. He's committed to go to Jordan. And when they get to Jordan, I sort of like to picture myself in Naaman's shoes. What would I do if I was Naaman? Just to be honest, what would you do? How would you feel? You've had such a high opinion of yourself. And you know you've had a measure of success. Blessed of God. You've led armies. You've commanded armies to march and you've seen the enemy fall again and again. You've had training. You've had great respect with your master. You're a great man. He knows you and you know him and you listen to what he has to say and he has faith and trust in you. And here's a guy like that now at the brink of Jordan having to jump in. Can you imagine how you would feel? If that would have been me, and gone in one time and come back up all soaking wet and muddy. I have a feeling I would have been a little embarrassed. Probably. In a human way. Not embarrassed that I'm minding God. Just embarrassed a little. For who I am. And doing this that nobody else has ever done. A tendency to be a little embarrassed, I would think. But he remembers it's not one time, it's seven times, and thou shalt be clean. So he goes down the second time, and up he comes. If that would have been me, it might have been that I would have been a little pessimistic. By this time, I looked at my sores and realized the skin isn't healing. Nothing's happening. You know, and really, I'm saying, Lord, you know, give me a sign. Give me some evidence. This thing's going to work. Nothing's happened. And I've done it twice already. I might have been a little pessimistic. But he remembers it's not two times, it's seven times. And thou shalt be clean. And down he goes. And up he comes. And if this would have been me, I think by the third time, and all those people standing around, I really do think I'd have been a little worried about my influence. Lord, you told me to do it. Nothing's happened. These people came to watch and to see a miracle. Lord, look at me. Three times, nothing's happened. My influence is at stake. And really, Lord, your influence is at stake. And your character and your words at stake. I'd have had a little tendency to be worried about my influence, I think. But he remembers it's not three times. It's seven times. And down he goes and up he comes. And the fourth time, if that would have been me, I'd have tried to be a little optimistic. I would have reasoned something like this. Better than halfway. That's right. I'm a coming. 
Yeah. But he remembers it's not four times, it's seven times. So down he goes again and up he comes. And by the fifth time, I think I would have tried to encourage myself a little. Looked at my sores, and they're not any better. But thank God they're not any worse. You know, they're not getting worse. They're not more of them. You know, it's, it, it hasn't helped anybody. It hadn't hurt any, except my pride. And, of course, that's the very thing God wanted to knock out of them anyhow. Yeah, and that's the very root of the problem with so many people. Have to go down enough times to get rid of that. I think I would try to encourage myself. But he remembers it's not five times, it's seven times. So down he goes again. And up he comes now the sixth time. If that would have been me, I think I would have been determined after six times. At a reason like this. I've come too far to stop now. I'm too near to quit now. It's just one more time. And you know, right here is where the majority of the people in our churches and in our families are hung up. They go six steps with the Lord, but they don't go that final step. And really the devil doesn't care. Where he knows there are seven steps to be followed. He doesn't care if you go one or two or three or four or five or six. As long as you don't go that final one. He just doesn't want you to have full victory. Oh, he doesn't care if we come to church and involve ourselves. No, he doesn't care. He really doesn't care if you sing specials. He really doesn't care if you play the piano. He really doesn't care if you teach a Sunday school class. As long as you know you aren't obeying God fully. Oh, you may deceive a lot of people. Yeah, you know, you can deceive all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool God any of the time. He doesn't care. In fact, he doesn't even care in this camp meeting. If you'll come down here to the altar and shed a few tears, uh, as long, as long as you don't pray clear through to victory, go the six steps, go the six dips, but don't go that seventh. I'm positive there won't be anybody out of this crowd today be tempted of the devil to go out and smoke a cigarette or to drink liquor or to shoot drugs or to shoot somebody in cold blood or to rob a bank. No, no. The devil knows better than tempt us kind of people with those things. But I dare say, ere this day's over, the devil will be around to the majority of us. Try to get us to think in areas we ought not think. Try to say things about our brothers and sisters in the Lord that we ought not say. Oh yes, oh yes. So discord among the brethren. Be contentious. Refuse to walk in the light. Oh yeah, he'll tempt us with that. I guarantee you ere this day is over, that's what'll happen. For you see, he realizes that that fellow that's out there smoking and drinking and shooting drugs, 
or is robbing banks or murdering somebody. And the fellow that's dressed properly and goes to church on a regular basis and that individual that sows discord and hides it from the preacher and hides it from the majority of the people and is dressed so nicely and has such a nice warm facade and a smile on his face and puts up such a nice front and everything is just lovely. He knows that both sides when they're unrepented of the end result of both will be hell forever and he doesn't care how he gets you for the end is if you're out there and you're the worst criminal in the world you'll go to hell if you don't repent of it and if you're the best looking saint in the church but you haven't obeyed God that final step you may have appearance as a wonderful fellow but if you aren't right with God you'll go to hell just as quickly as that fellow will the devil doesn't care. Just don't get right with God. Don't go that seventh time. But he remembers it's not six times, it's seven times. And thou shalt be clean. And down it goes and up it comes. And instantly his flesh is returned like the flesh of a little child. There you have point number five, the cure. Point number six, he says, and he was clean. There you have the cleansing. Point number seven in my outline is in verse 19, I read it to you. Go in peace. There you have the commission. Hallelujah. And I'm here to tell you on this morning that there is a way if there is a need in your heart there is a call for help there's some area you're struggling over if you'll be honest and come to Jesus Christ he'll give you a clear command as to what you have to do in order to have victory in your heart upon hearing that command you may be a bit contentious and you may reason and rationalize and fuss and argue and stomp off and whatever but quickly get beyond that point of contention and come to a place of commitment where you say I'll go to my Jordan I'll do whatever he says I'll obey the Lord for I want the cure and I want the cleansing and I want to hear the commission go in peace I want victory in my heart over every issue over every item over every impression over every idea in my life and we can have it but it comes by obeying of the Lord with this I'm through I was in Ohio in a revival meeting a number of years ago. And I made a statement in a, in a message. I said, I don't know what you have to do to have victory in your heart. But it just could be that somebody in this service tonight to have victory going to have to get on their hands and knees and crawl around this church. After the service. A young lady came up to me and told me this story. She said years ago at that altar in that church, her mother was seeking to be sanctified. And I don't want you to read into this particular illustration any more than I'm trying to make of it. I'm simply saying you have to do whatever God tells you to do. I'm not saying everybody that gets sanctified has to get on their hands and knees and crawl around the church. That's not what I'm saying. But she was praying. Her and the Lord were having a conversation. She was saying, Lord, I want to be sanctified. And the Lord was saying, how much do you want to be sanctified? And she said, more than anything else in the world. And finally the answer came back. So much so that you'd be willing to get on your hands and knees and crawl around this church. 
for me to sanctify you? And she responded by saying, well, yes, Lord. If you see something in me that requires that to bring me low and humble me down in my consecration, in my surrender to thee, sure, yes. And she did. And she started crawling around that church. Her daughter, that lady, now telling me the story, was 13 years of age. And she said when she saw her mother on her knees, hands and knees, crawling around that church, she said, I was embarrassed. Well, I'm not going to find fault with that. For I believe if I'd have been 13, in fact, I believe even at my age now, if I'd see my little old five-foot Amish Dutch mama crawling on her hands and knees, I tell you, I think I'd be a little embarrassed too. You know, so I'm not going to find fault with a 13-year-old being embarrassed. And she said as she went around, something rose up in her heart. And she said, I'll never do that. And of course, we know that's one step too far. You can't get by with that. That's what she said. Her mother made the loop and came back to the altar and God gloriously sanctified her. I could take you to the church. I could take you to the lady. And that lady is still shouting the victory today. Hallelujah. Now, she said, this lady, now married, pastor's wife, has two sons that are nearly grown, and I guess they are by now, about 18, maybe 19, and 17 years of age, she said, just prior to our coming to that revival, she's at that altar. She's seeking to be sanctified. Her and the Lord's having a conversation. She's saying, oh Lord, I want to be sanctified. And the Lord's saying, how much do you want to be sanctified? She said, more than anything else in the world. And the Lord said, so much so that you'd be willing to get on your hands and knees. And when the Lord said that, she instantly remembered what she had said so many years ago. She'd never do. And she came right back by saying, oh, Lord, I'll do anything but not crawl. I'll do anything but not crawl. You know what she was doing? She was getting contentious when the command came. And she was offering suggestions. I'll do anything, Lord, but don't make me crawl. For she remembered. She said, I'll never do it. We have a little saying around our house. Never say never. <laughs> Every once in a while, something will come up, and one of the girls, or even myself, I say, just, just off the cuff, you know, I'll say, uh, I'll never do that. You know, and instantly I'm corrected. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. How do you want to say that? Well, I'd rather not do that. You know, that's not as strong. <laughs> and here she was. She argued with the Lord. She did everything. She got nowhere. And finally, in desperation, she threw up both hands and she said, Yes, Lord, I will. I don't really want to. I don't really want to. But if that's what you require to sanctify me, I want to be sanctified more than anything. And the Lord said, Crawl. And she told me, she was already, of course, on her knees. She said, I turned to put my hands on the floor to crawl, do something I really didn't want to do. But I said I would. I wanted to be sanctified. 
And she said before she got her hands on the floor, God came and sanctified her holy. Dear friend, in God's eyes, when he realized she was willing to do it, she made the loop in his eyes. Dear friend, whatever we have to do, whatever we have to do to have victory in our heart, let's do it. It may seem ridiculous to people, you know, but if God says it, we'll have to have victory. The way to victory, obey God. Naaman finally obeyed and was cured of his leprosy. And dear friend, there is a cure to any problem you have if you'll simply do what God says about those things. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we thank thee today. We have the privilege of loving thee. We're glad, Lord, that you're so vitally interested in every one of us until you take time to individually give us individual commands that will produce victory in our individual hearts. Oh God, we're glad you're not a God with a billy club in your hand just ready to hammer us over the head, but you're a loving Lord who wants us to live with you forever so much that you'll tell us, don't do that, do this. Line up here, don't say that anymore. Don't go there anymore. Start doing this. We're glad you love us that much, Lord. Just give us a willingness to obey thee in all the details that we might have full victory in our hearts. Give us gracious help throughout this day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. That has been passed